0: You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource.
1: I am very excited about today's interview on The Real Well Show. We have Gary Beasley joining us, the CEO and founder of Roofstock. He was just a normal guy when I met him years ago. Today, he is a leader in the institutional space, a true disruptor of the single-family rental business. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Gary Beasley started and launched several successful companies, leading two of them through IPOs, Zip Realty as CFO, and Starwood Waypoint Residential Trust, where he was a co-CEO. That is now part of Invitation Homes, the largest single-family rental home REIT in the U.S. Gary was also instrumental in acquiring and integrating more than $800 million of resort properties for KSL Resorts, and served as CEO of Joie de Vivre, hospitality. Gary was named a 2019 Top 50 FinTech CEO by Financial Technology Report and HousingWire's 2018 HW Vanguard. He earned his BA in economics from Northwestern and holds an MBA from Stanford. And he's here with us today on The Real Wealth Show. Welcome, Gary. It's really an honor to have you here.
0: Thanks, Kathy. How are you?
1: Good. I think I first met you at Goldman Sachs when we were both nominated for Top 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs. <laughs> remember that? That was a
0: while ago. Yeah, I wonder if we're still intriguing. Back then, <laughs> perhaps we were. But yes, I I do remember that, actually.
1: That was, that was really cool. That was a great event where I think we were the only two real estate groups there. But I'm not sure if it was... I, I won it two years in a row, and one of the years the Uber guys were there, and uh like some big names i think Elon Musk one year so anyway it was happy Good to represent company. yeah happy yes. to represent the represent the uh, real estate side of it and i think at the time you were there because you had a real estate fund single family fund what 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 was it at that point
0: it was it was uh called waypoint homes waypoint at, yeah at the time yeah we it, we were one of the first to um buy single family rentals back during the great financial crisis so Back in January of 2012, I think we were the first group to get to a thousand homes, um, which you know was over 10 years ago, and a thousand homes was a lot back then. Um, By the end of that first quarter of 2012, Blackstone was buying a thousand homes a week, (laughs) so that's how much it changed. It took us a couple years to get to a thousand with friends and family money and some of our own, but then it really institutionalization really started that quarter. That's also when. Home prices bottomed, if you recall, and they started going up uh, in the first quarter of 2012. So it was interesting times.
1: Yeah, looking back, you know, I had been syndicating since 2009. We were buying foreclosed land, foreclosed subdivisions, 10 cents on the dollar, syndicating it. And I, I had the idea of doing what you were doing, which was to buy homes that were so cheap. In some cases in California, 75 percent less uh, yeah if you bought in certain areas but i didn't know how to manage it and, and so but i i knew it would be a good idea so going back to to that time when i guess like you started with friends and family money like yeah. how did you do that and how did you manage it all
0: yeah so um it, it i remember it very vividly so um Doug Bryan and Colin Wheel were my partners at Waypoint back in the day. And um, I remember Doug talking to me at my daughter's um, soccer game saying, hey, I think I'm going to start buying some homes in Pittsburgh and and renting them out. And I thought he was talking about Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's yeah. Pittsburgh here in the, in the Far East Bay. I said, why would you do that? He said, they've dropped. You know, they were $400,000 homes you could buy for $125,000 and get a 10% net yield. They said, huh. That's interesting. So it by far had the best yield of any real estate asset, but you had to believe in the rent. And and even during the financial crisis we didn't see rents drop in single family homes. Prices dropped in that Far East Bay, like you said, 65 to 75%. The rent stayed pretty constant. And then all these people unfortunately had lost their homes, they were now renters, so there's this incredible renter demand. The supply of available homes to rent was lower than the demand, so there were waiting lists. So we just started buying homes then with our own money and with some friends' money and raised, I think, nine or ten small funds every kind of six to six months or so. And then we said, you know what? We should just go big and raise some institutional money and try to build a platform. And that's what we did. And we raised $200 million of equity from a private equity firm and, and then started going and actually put the first debt facility in place uh, with Citi back in 2012 in the space uh, to, which, you know, uh, helped, you know, others figure out how to scale this, but yeah, lots happened since then, as you know, <laughs> a lot.
1: and and you know, in retrospect, I think a lot of people would think, well, it's so obvious. Why didn't everyone do it? But in the yeah. moment when, when the world economies are collapsing, when wall street giants like Lehman brothers come crashing down, people oh, get yeah. paralyzed. Um,
0: you're right, Kathy. I mean, it's to to us. It, we thought we were missing something big. So we're seeing the fundamentals of this. The worst case is you have a home with a 10 percent yield that doesn't go up in value um, anytime soon. But we knew it was California real estate. It's it's eventually going to recover, and you're getting paid to wait. And but but it's funny the herd mentality when when people aren't, you know, if others aren't doing it, it doesn't seem like a good idea. The only mistake we made is we didn't buy enough houses back then. We just didn't have enough money. We, we were buying yeah. as much as we could. Um, but we, we just, to me, it was an interesting um, way to think about it is if we were able to build a platform, we could create enterprise value by building an operating platform that has value. Worst case is we had houses that we got a great deal on that we could just sell in the open market to. Homeowners. That was that's one of the unique things about single family rentals is you have two exits. As you know, you could yes. sell it to an investor who's looking for the yield and, and total return, or just a homeowner, and you could sell it vacant. So very few. There really aren't any. I think other good analogs in real estate where you have two prescribed exits that are both legitimate um, without having to do anything uh, to the physical asset. So it's a nice. It's like an embedded option that yeah. doesn't get valued. I think when people buy these things
1: hundred hundred hundred, percent. Um, so again, I'm just going to climb into your mindset for a minute because I, I did have people come to me showing me what you could buy in Pittsburgh in that whole area out there in the East Bay. I lived in Walnut Creek, so mm. I knew the area. That's right. What, what was happening in Walnut Creek? I mean, you could, you could buy condos for 60 grand. <laughs> Isn't incredible. What, what I didn't, what I couldn't grasp and that you did was you know, how to build the team, because there's a few pieces here. You have to know what you're buying. You have to maybe pay the right price, make sure it's in, you understand what needs to be done to fix it? You need to manage it. You're using other people's money. You don't want to lose their money. Like, how did you pull the pieces together? I'm a visionary and I could see it. I just didn't know how to pull it off. So would you say you're a visionary or an integrator or both?
0: Or like, how did you, how did you, do it <laughs> well. I, I would say, um, I, I. It was clear to my partners and me. I think we had the vision of what we wanted to build, but we've also built things in our in our past. Doug, Doug was a longtime real estate investor, liked to get his hands dirty. Um, mm-hmm. I've run other businesses, and so I've always been attracted to operationally intensive real estate uh, that's in the path of growth, and so. Um, and where you could apply technology and new business processes and create value. And so I spent a lot of time in the hospitality world, <clears throat> obviously very operationally intensive, a lot of moving piece, pieces. A hotel is more an operating company than a real estate asset in many ways uh, because of all the services. So we knew we could apply technology and and automate a lot of this stuff, the both the underwriting and the property management processes. And, you know, I think there's there's two reasons the the institutionalization happened of, of single family rentals. Um, one was the, the financial crisis, the great financial crisis, which created the entry point, right? Created great yield. But the second and as important was the advent of cloud computing and mobile computing. Mm-hmm. So you could go through and at the time it was iPads. Now people are using their phones. We, we built out all the technology. So a, a technician or a construction estimator could go through the house and just estimate things on the ipad and all that data was structured it got pulled into and immediately went out for bid and contractors so we built our own platform so rather than using the yellow sheets and you know that doesn't scale people yeah. could do a few of them maybe five or ten of them but we were doing hundreds of them and um we, we needed to build technology and so that new technology really un, uh, it would happen to be available at the time when this crisis happened and so we leaned into developing out a, a, a technology platform and then others did the same thing and built out their own um so yeah that, that's both of those were, i think really critical in getting um being able to operate these things really as efficiently as apartments if you look at the the margins the net operating income margins of the large single family rental players they're very similar to multifamily, very similar to apartments um, mm-hmm because you can operate them quite efficiently now at scale.
1: Yeah, it didn't hurt that you were in the in the San Francisco Bay area with plenty of tech help there. I think no, it is that's yeah. a really fascinating um way to look at it because we're talking just a few years before that. Uh, we didn't we didn't have the technology. It, it was just being created. Uh, yeah. people, people didn't even have phones, you know,
0: like cell phones. It was it, you and it I was... could remember those days, right? <laughs> You'd go travel with someone and if you lost them, um you were lost right it was uh it, you know, different times yeah
1: <laughs> it was a beautiful thing when a pager you know was like oh you can, you could anyway we yeah we've yeah. come a long way but before yeah. i mean just a few years before uh property management was archaic um mm-hmm. you know you, they didn't have systems there was no uniformity and that's what why i was afraid so it's really cool to watch you be on the forefront of what just blew up a few a few years later. I mean, I think it was 2012 when Warren Buffett said, "If I could buy a few hundred thousand homes, I would if I knew how to manage them." And that's how I felt. I would too. I knew how to raise the money, I knew yeah. where the deals were, but I didn't know how to manage them. And that's the key. So, what are some of the changes that you've seen over the past decade in terms of managing a large portfolio? Besides technology, of course, like you just said.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Certainly, <laughs> I think. Um... The technology has helped a lot. I think a lot of it has just been experience and then multiple players coming in and trying different things and sharing best practices. Um, I'm involved in the National Rental Home Council where we have a lot of, um, you know, we have regular meetings and we compare notes on, you know, best practices. And it's both for large and small and medium-sized owners. So I think it's been a very collaborative Decade of people really wanting to get better. I think that there's um, a lot of good things. I know there's institutionalization gets kind of a bad rap, and you know, that, that could be the topic of a whole podcast. But some of the positives of it, I think, are evident in what's been happening in the space with investing in systems, um, groups being able to build infrastructure to be responsive to, to tenants, to residents, to deliver better service, um, improving the physical. Uh, plant and building homes to rent is is a huge thing now for the last few years you've seen a, an explosion of homes being built specifically for renters and they're being built so they could cater to renters better and they could be serviced for example from the outside without having to disturb the resident you could get to the you you know the um, HVAC system and the boiler and things like that so there's things you could do from a design standpoint that help both the resident have better experience and it be a more profitable investment. So, um, and then the, the, the financing markets obviously developed Um, the debt markets actually developed faster than the equity markets. Interestingly, over that decade, you were seeing securitization start to happen um, and trade very well um, before the public equities of the big REITs traded well. So it was interesting that the, The public investors seem to get more confident with the underlying collateral and the debt before the Invitation Homes and American Homes for Rent started trading really well. Um, So we've seen that mature. Um, So yeah, we've just seen the financing markets develop. And I think we've seen the space become viewed as a legitimate asset class now, where I used to get laughed off the stage at conferences saying, someday – yeah, people are going to be looking at SFR, single-family rentals, much like multifamily. And uh, people are laughing and like, come on, you can't manage <laughs> homes like that at scale, blah, blah, blah. And so now um, if you read some of the Green Street research, which they're one of the big uh, REIT analysts that most well-respected, um, they they cover single-family rental. And I think the last report I saw, uh, the single-family rental REITs, Were had the the second lowest cap rate of all of the different asset classes. I think industrial was slightly lower, but SFR was lower than multifamily than really any of the other classes. Meaning people have confidence in it, and or and it's they've been trading to a level that's that's attractive. So it's it's all happened quickly. A decade really is a lot. Uh, I mean, a lot has happened in a decade um, for this asset class um, that's that I think has been. Yeah, you know, for the most part, pretty pretty positive for all the participants.
1: Yeah, and you've been at the at the forefront of, of all of that. Um, there was a time when those of us, mom and pop's boots on the street, were looking at institutional buyers going, What are they thinking? Overpaying. Uh, I think in mm-hmm. the beginning, many of them just had a bunch of they they were great at the acquisition, they had a bunch of money they'd buy homes, but they would just sit vacant or they didn't to yeah. manage it. Right. Remember those good old days? We thought for sure they were going to fail.
0: They didn't. It, it's so funny. You say that. I was telling this story the other day. I won't mention the firm, but um, in the early days, and this was in 2012, um, one of the big institutional players showed up at an auction and said, I'm going to buy everything today. And everyone, all the people who were there kind of laughed. Yeah. And, sh- and she did. She, she had authorization to buy every house that day, and, um, and they were sending a message. They're like, okay, we're here, and yeah. you guys could keep coming, but we're going to keep winning, so you might want to go somewhere else type thing, um, and we were, we were saying, oh, this is crazy. They're overpaying for everything, but what they realized was they were buying at such a discount to replacement cost. Um, we, were being, we, we would get to our max bid, which was di- driven by our underwriting, and we'd just stop. Um, we didn't have unlimited money, so we were just trying to optimize every investment. They're just saying, "Hey, if we could buy it a meaningful discount to replacement cost, we're going to buy it." And they had access to that kind of capital and, and did it. But what's interesting is back then, that's really what the economy needed. It needed a lot of you know, a lot of capital to come in and renovate all these homes that had been foreclosed on, and many of which were run down and not habitable um and so it really was a good kind of confluence of of private enterprise and what the housing market and the and the neighborhoods needed back at that time um and uh, so i i remember the my first day at waypoint i said you know what i'm going to do i'm going to get out in the field and i'm going to kick the tires and i went out to one of these neighborhoods and i think it was in antioch which just near pittsburgh right you know and mm-hmm. and the one of the first homes i saw we were going in and our guys were like we, the renovation was about to start, so we were pulling out all the crap that had been left in there, and this woman next door in this robe and fuzzy slippers came over and gave me a hug and she said, "Thank you, I'm so glad somebody bought this house because mm. it's been there's been a bunch of drug dealers in there my my kids were afraid to walk, they'd have to go around the block to go to school mm-hmm. but but it was that was a little microcosm of what was happening, and so you know we kind of cl- you know cleared them out. Everything out, renovated it, and so you, we turned the worst house on the street into one of the best houses on the street. And so that that's like that's the narrative that's not really discussed a lot of what the, the positives of of investor capital and whether that's you know large institutional investors or mom and pop investors who who can buy assets that need to be repositioned, and you really can turn them into some of the some of the better homes in the neighborhood. And I think the oh, stigma yeah. of rent. I think the stigma of renting is. Really diminished um, over what it was yes. uh, certainly a decade ago. Um, I, I like to say when you go down the street. I'm looking out now. I don't know who owns their car, who leases it, who cares. Yes. It's a car. It's a financing decision. So same. I don't know why the same thing can't be with housing. Why can't people choose their neighborhoods where they want to live? And I think do think renting does provide real upward mobility for families to get into better neighborhoods and before they were able to buy it. And so um, there's, I think there's some good that that comes from it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you, you reminded me of, I I went about it a little differently. I I wish I had put it all in a fund and held everything, but instead I helped other people do that. And we would Mm -hmm. uh, take busloads of investors through those streets. Like you said, that homes were boarded up. uh, They were full of squatters and drug dealers and uh, nice neighborhoods just turned overnight, and people who remained there who were still living there would look out their windows and not recognize their neighborhood and they were afraid to go outside. We would totally. drive through those streets, investors in the bus would buy up all the homes we'd fix them up and return those neighborhoods and just like you, the neighbors would just thank us so yeah, I do hope that somehow that gets out there uh, of how investors did really help, but fast forward to today. Um, obviously institutional funds have grown a lot, um, even though landlords have been around for a long time, would you say that between the current, like mom and pop landlords and institutional landlords, are there more rentals on the market or just more institutional landlords?
0: I would say that there's more rentals on the market. Um, although when you look at home ownership rates have, have really rebounded as well, right? So they were back during the financial crisis, they got really low, kind of into the low 60s, and now back to the mid 60s, they've sort of come back. But we've continued to add some supply with homes being built and things. And we we track the data, there are more rental homes now than there were back then. But there's more homes too. So, um, you know, I think um, there's, you know, roughly 20 million rental homes by our count, when you count Two, two and four unit buildings which really are we consider uh, single family as well because it's the same financing um, and and so it's up it's up a bit but um, the institutional folks own you'll know, call it two percent of that you know two to three percent maybe it's five or six hundred thousand homes that are owned by all the large institutions out of the t- roughly 20 million rentals and the 90 plus million homes so it's pretty small. Um, there are certainly neighborhoods where it feels like those folks have a disproportionate impact. Those are isolated. But when you do look at it broadly across the country, it's pretty small.
1: Yeah. And yet that tiny percentage gets so much flack and there's so much fear. Why do you think people are afraid of an institutionally managed, you know, Wall Street managed rental versus my rental? You know, it seems like you got more money, you know, you can maybe have different standards, have better systems, you know, why are people so afraid of wall street and not even wall street, just institutional money?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think there, there is, um, I mean, people think, I think maybe associate wall street money with the financial crisis and foreclosures and people getting kicked out of their homes, um, Mm -hmm. banks and, and all that. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, again, it's a longer story to, to really think about and unpack. I think Mm -hmm. people think about maybe being able to negotiate better with an individual owner. So maybe they're going to be a kinder, gentler owner, um, who understands their personal circumstances rather than being purely financially motivated. Um, I think that's probably part of it. And, and there are circumstances where that, that, it's probably the case and i just give
1: my tenant a five-month break <laughs> so you're right People,
0: no i mean you know where it's more um kind of I've, I've sort of done the same thing in some rental homes that i've had um it's not purely you, you're not purely driven by the numbers where mm-hmm. the sfr operators are largely although i would say during the financial crisis um did a very good job of, of keeping people in homes, working with with folks and kind of quietly doing a lot of that stuff, things that they probably did not need to do. But I think that's probably what it is. I think that the positive, though, is these these larger companies have brands to protect. So they follow fair housing laws. They fix things when they're broken. People get their security deposits back as long as the place is in good shape. You know, All these things that can be a bit of a crapshoot with a mom-and-pop landlord um, who you you could get a really good landlord. You could get a really bad landlord and, and they may tell you to go pound sand. They're keeping your security, but so sue me. Are you going to actually take them to court over a thousand bucks? No one does. So, but, so you do get a little bit more assurance. It's almost like staying in a, a flag hotel or a chain hotel versus an independent that you've Mm -hmm. never heard of along the roadside. You sort of know what you're getting to some degree with these, and that, that has some advantages.
1: That's a great explanation. I mean, some of the things I've heard are, oh, they're just going to try it out, not like it, and then dump a bunch of properties on the market all at once. I hear that all the time um, because apparently yeah. funds don't care about losing money. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, that's, you- not,
0: that's not true for sure in my <laughs> experience, or they're not repeat fund owners. I think that was an argument back in the early days. I think people were thinking it was more of a fix and flip mentality, where people mm-hmm. were going to just buy them and then sell them all once they went up in value. And um, we haven't really seen that be the case. I think what they, these investors have realized is there's value to the income as well as the appreciation, owning these things over time. Mm-hmm. And even when they do sell them, if they sell them in a portfolio to investors, the signs never go up in the in the yard. It, it doesn't affect people's individual property values because Even if there are five homes in a neighborhood part of a big portfolio and it trades, it's just, it's almost like changing the servicing on a mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. It's no one even really knows. So the homes have traded, but it it hasn't, it certainly hasn't been dumped onto the market and, you know what I mean? And, and, and influence people's values that way.
1: Yeah. I, I was never worried about that happening. I did wonder And you cleared it up earlier, but I wanted to ask the question here. I I wondered if a lot of these funds that own thousands, hundreds of thousands of properties were on adjustable rate mortgages and feeling the pain right now. But you said they're not.
0: They're not. For the most part, they are enjoying fixed rate financing through securitizations, which um, the securitization market was really Um, humming the last few years. And a lot of the owners took full advantage of that of that. Now, in the UK, it's different. Um, in the UK, there's, for the most part, short-term floating rate financing, not 30-year fixed mortgages. Uh, that you can't um, go very long in terms of the term. So you are seeing a lot of pain in the UK of people's interest rates going up and them having to refinance at higher interest rates and lower values. And so you know we benefit from a, a much different financing system here, which does allow that fixed rate, longer term financing. But as a consequence, we're actually seeing some real opportunities to buy in the UK, hmm. where there's um, um, a little bit more distress, people looking to sell. There's also um, in the UK, a, a, a big push towards um, uh, upgrading the homes from an environmental standpoint. You know, They have what's called an EPC scale, which is a which is a scale that measures carbon emissions and all the rental properties there in a couple of years are going to have to be at least of a certain rating. And if the properties aren't improved to that rating, they won't be able to be rented. And so there's an opportunity for landlords to come in, put in that money, like new owners and upgrade, you know, whether it's a heat pump, insulation, windows, electric appliances, things like that. You really reduce the carbon output. And the and the utility costs for the resident some of which can be recouped and can rent but but then it, it you have a, a a property that's then sort of future proof for the next few decades which needs to happen especially with really old housing stock like in the uk mm-hmm. so you're seeing some capital starting to um, look at that market that because of the financing uh, dynamic that you mentioned about the floating rates and the in the term we're, we're obviously going to be experiencing a really interesting time here over the next couple of years with in the commercial space yeah. here with uh, all, that that um couple couple trillion dollars of loans rolling over the next 2 to 3 years with regional banks it will be very very interesting um to see all that transpires and if to what degree it leads into the broader economy or residential i think tbd
1: well, and that's that's the thing that a lot of people who are expecting a housing crash are forgetting is that housing, U.S. housing, one to four unit, is probably one of the most stable asset classes right now because of those fixed, lo- fixed yep. loans. Back in 2008, it was adjustable rate mortgages. That's what brought right. housing down. But today... T- the majority of homes are on 30 year fixed or fixed rate loans at very low rates. Other countries don't have that. So I agree with you. There's going to be opportunity in other countries. I know Canada is experiencing the same thing there. Yeah. Their mortgages went way up because they're adjustable. And then of course here in America and the commercial real estate world. So and it's, will and
0: it's obviously, you know, it's obviously keeping our supply down too, right? Because I, I know so many people anecdotally who have two and a half percent mortgages who have, sold their home and moved and kept it as a rental yeah. because you know, that, that two and a half or three percent mortgage is an asset, it, you can't right? You can you give that You just can't give it up. No. And, um, and so that home is not being sold into the market. So the, for, for, so the inventory is so much lower than it's been historically, which helps prop up prices. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised there hasn't been a big correction in housing, I think what you saw was prices sort of peak um, and, you know, you know, they, they peaked and then they came back to where they were kind of a, a year ago. And then, you know, in the first quarter and then have been going up steadily since then. But it feels like they've, for the most part, have bottomed and are, are um, going up again. And but they never really. Um, Experienced that twenty or thirty percent decline that I think a lot of people expected, um, because I think of this lack of really lack of supply that's, mm-hmm. that's partially driven by, ironically, the the, the rates um, keeping the rates high has kept home prices propped up because of this lack of supply, which is almost counterintuitive, right? You think, right. oh, mortgage rates are going up, so home prices need to come down, and there's certainly that impact where people can. I think they they were just buying maybe a different house. They were buying what they could afford, but it was a different house, but the supply was just very constrained.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the dilemma is, uh, high, high mortgage rates actually are doing the opposite. They're, they're keeping home prices high because no, it's a stuck market. Hopefully that changes soon. Uh, but coming back to you and where you are today with just such an insider view of, how things are going in the rental industry with, because you, you know, you, at Roofstock, I don't how, what, what's your portfolio at this point?
0: Uh, well, we've, we've, um, you know, we're a transaction and we're an investment platform. We've,
1: I should, I should brought, say, what is Roofstock? You know, because yeah, yeah. I, I think there's misconception about it.
0: Yeah. I think, think about Roofstock, it, we're, we're a real estate services company. So uh, I like to describe what we're doing is providing real estate investment as a service. So if you're an investor and you want to buy a home, sell a home, manage a home better, you could come to Roofstock and, and rent our platform. So a little bit like I was talking about cloud computing, mm-hmm. you could come in and, and you, know, you, you use Roofstock almost like your real estate investment cloud. And you don't need to be an expert. Uh, we're catering principally to institutional capital now. We have it historically also had a pretty robust retail business. Our focus is largely on the institutional segment although we do work with some high-net-worth individuals as well. over we, we do have a product called Stessa, which is for retail investors, which is free. It's an at piece of asset management software to help you manage your single-family rental home or homes um, better. But, but really, our, our platform is designed to um, apply data and technology and our expertise in the sector to allow transactions to happen more efficiently. We can help people build portfolios, which we will then manage for them. We can help in- investors sell portfolios or homes individually. And so, we currently we, we've probably done you know, about six billion dollars of trades uh, over the years. We currently manage about fifteen thousand houses um, ourselves for investors um, who own the assets. And um, you know, we're do- we're really kind of in the market helping buyers and sellers and kind of creating liquidity in, in the space. we're also doing some kind of cool stuff. I don't know if you saw Kathy with blockchain where we've tokenized a few homes and we've sold them Mm. on the Ethereum blockchain. We think there's, it's early, but there's some some promise there to package up homes that could be sold in a frictionless way. So that's, that's a little bit of a skunk works project that we're working on, but we're always looking for ways to kind of, kind of, um, innovate in the space make it try to reduce friction cost Mm. increase transparency uh, of real estate transactions
1: why do funds sell to each other why don't they just so
0: yeah so most it depends on the fund but most funds have a finite life and they need to return capital five to seven years um and so especially the private equity funds they're much more opportunistic. They will buy, uh, refinance, kind of get it to a separate place and sell. So that's just their business model. Now, um, the, the big REITs are perpetual owners. So they don't need to sell anything, but they will sell some percentage of their assets um, and kind of move chips around. They'll, they'll perhaps harvest some gains in areas that they think might have traded up. Um, and they'll sell those and they'll buy in areas they think there might be more growth um, or they'll sell areas where they're subscale to operators who already have scale. So moving some of those chess pieces around, we help a lot of those players with their asset management strategy. We have some technology that can evaluate. We've mapped all 90 million homes. We know who owns them. We know all the institutional owners of the rental homes. So we can see natural patterns of hey, you know, if if you ever wanted to sell a couple thousand homes to generate some proceeds, here's, here's some suggestions and hmm. here's who the buyers might be and we can help make those trades happen for you. So it's really kind of asset management where the, the perpetual owners might want to sell certain things. Um, and then you'll have some owners like pension funds and things like that who might just want to buy homes and just tuck them away um, and just own them forever. Um, so it really depends on the owner.
1: Fascinating. Well, I've taken enough of your time, Gary. You're so fascinating. I've uh, just been so impressed with your career and, and the growth and, and all that you've done to uh, raise the level really of, of the real estate investment world.
0: In well, I appreciate it, Kathy. <laughs> and you know, likewise, I've always been impressed by you. We've known each other for a long time. And um, you know, I, I think it's it's wonderful that there are resources like you that investors can tap into um, you know, obviously we, we spend a lot of time with larger investors. I think it's, it's amazing that, that you could sort of be a mouthpiece for some of the smaller investors and a resource for them to get access to the asset class. As you know, I'm a fan of the, of the asset class. And I think it should be, it, it could be an important part of everyone's portfolio to some degree. If you've got some investable capital, And I think, you know, breaking down those barriers to, to investing is really important. I think that's one of the things you, you do a great job of.
1: Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Hopefully, uh, with my single family rental funds, we'll get big enough that uh, that we could be working with Roostock in that way. We'd love too. to help
0: you. Yes,
1: <laughs> Awesome. All right, Gary, thanks again for being here on The Real Wealth Show. It's really a pleasure.
0: Great to see you, Kathy.
1: And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you would like to learn how to build your portfolio and get referrals to property teams who can help you do that in some of the fastest growing markets in the country, just go to realwealthshow.com. You can join for free. Once you do, you'll get access to our private portal where you'll get hundreds of free webinars on asset protection, acquisition process, how to understand a pro forma, all the goodies for free at realwealthshow.com. along with a free session with one of our very experienced investment counselors and again referrals to teams that come highly highly recommended by our over 70,000 members at RealWealth. Again, you can do that at RealWealthShow.com. Thanks for joining me.